He has decided to go whole hog on facial recognition, apparently. Uh, How big a deal is that? France is going to become the first European country to use facial recognition to give you, if you're a citizen of France, a secure digital identity. They're going to let you or actually force you to log in by taking a video of yourself on an Android app, which uh, which video of your face will then be compared to their biometric passport uh, file, uh, which has your photo in it. There's lots of challenges. The French data regulator thinks it may be illegal. There are advocacy groups challenging it under various theories, including European-wide regulation. So, you know, it's a little bit of a mess. My prediction is the privacy authority, the CNIL in France, uh, does not have the clout to untie the security services shoes, uh, uh, let alone stop them from doing this. Uh, and and I, I, the privacy objection here is, it sounds incoherent. Uh, I, it's hard to see what privacy harm is done by looking at a video uh, of someone's face when you already have a picture of them in your database. I don't understand exactly what, what the concerns are. Um, and it's not clear that those advancing them do either. Well, you you haven't heard it often on this uh, podcast, but vive la France. Hey. Welcome to episode 281 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and expressing views that are not shared by anyone, our clients, our institutions, uh, and certainly not our spouses. Uh, uh, today, I'm joined by David Chris, who's a co-founder of Culper Partners, uh, formerly was the assistant attorney general in charge of the National Security Division at the Justice Department, and by Nick Weaver. Uh, Nick, it's so great to have you back. Uh, I'm delighted. It's been a long time. Glad to be here. Yes, it's it, it, it's uh, it's been a while. I, uh, we're going to have to uh, get you on more often. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program. Uh, uh, we've got a lot of stories to cover, so we'll try to move through them quickly. The one that really caught my attention uh, uh, is another decision from the uh, Court of Justice of the European Union uh, um, saying that. Uh, Uh, Judgment in Austria deciding that a particular statement on Facebook by a uh, uh, by a critic of a Austrian politician, uh, I think they called uh, the politician an oaf and a fascist. Uh, uh, The Austrian courts thought that was libelous and said, uh, uh, never say that again. Take it down. Don't say anything like that again. Uh, And Facebook, uh, you'll be liable too uh, if you don't get that stuff down everywhere in the world. Um, And so now we have it. uh, uh, The uh, European Union's um, uh, plan to recolonize uh, uh, the West uh, and hell, the East too, uh, is in full flower. They are um, asserting the right subject to international law, which they don't even uh, spell out, uh, to impose uh, speech restrictions all over the United States and the rest of the world, too, um, uh, based on one judge's decision in Austria. Kind of remarkable. Um, uh, David, I, this is uh, uh, this is the most egregious European interference in uh, U.S. domestic affairs uh, yet. Yeah, I mean, if, if you take it seriously, um, which I'm not sure 
uh, is probably the long run posture. Um, we are going to need some kind of uh, cloud act to manage all of the conflicting uh, legal obligations that will run in which uh, people will be held liable both for taking down content and not taking down content uh, all over the world subject to 187 different sets of restrictions. This doesn't seem like a stable uh, long-term paradigm for international comedy in the area of uh, free speech. I've been talking about this for years and I don't seem to get much traction on the Hill or with policymakers. Uh, here, here's my plan. If you are a uh, want to get credit for being a populist Republican uh, or even a populist Democrat, uh, um, this is what picking on the European Union for trying to stifle the speech of Americans is a no-brainer. You can't lose. And and. President Trump, I'm talking to you. How long do you think it will be before somebody sues you in Austria for calling some country a hole or for insulting Angela Merkel or Theresa May or practically anybody you tweet about in Europe? They will be able to sue you and then force Twitter to take you down. You can't, you've got to have legislation to stop that. Uh, and it wouldn't be hard. To, uh, the Europeans uh, showed us the way when they interfered in American sanctions uh, in the 80s on a pipeline that was going to be built that was going to create and did create a lot of dependence in Europe on gas. And the U.S. said uh, no American company will participate in that construction. And the Europeans all passed laws saying uh, if you're a European if you're a uh, European subsidiary of a U.S. company, you will do it on pain of massive penalties. So we could do the same thing here. We could pass a law that says you will obey this uh, court of justice judgment on pain of massive penalties. In fact, if you do anything that uh, in response to a uh, judgment of a foreign court that would violate the Euro the uh, First Amendment have done in the United States, I, we're going to punish you and the judge too. <laughs> so that's my uh, stab at populism for the afternoon. Uh, okay, Nick. The FDA has put out a, a, a notice saying there are 11 uh, serious, urgent uh, uh, security flaws in the technology that goes into a lot of medical device, devices. I think the only news in this is that they only found 11. Well, actually, it is more subtle news that it's really just the problem of embedded systems. So this is software that was written 20 years ago, bought out a decade plus ago, no longer supported, but it got into a lot of devices and it's the low level networking code. And it was basically discovered by accident that a IV pump triggered a alert as being VXWorks. And they went, no, it's not running VXWorks. It's running this completely different software, but they were both running the same TCP code. And the problem is, is the company that was responsible got bought out and bought out. And how do you even patch some of this stuff? Oh, yeah. There's no hope to patch it. Uh, nobody cares enough to patch it. And even if you did care enough to patch it, it's not clear that you can send that microcode down the line to the uh, uh, to the device. Uh, and if you could, frankly, we should all be just as scared as we are now. Yep. And the problem is, is medical devices for are basically 20 years behind the curve of everybody else in terms of treating the network as a hostile entity. 
that hospitals have tended to use single trusted networks for all these devices and not assuming that the network itself is evil. Yeah, I, I you know, the, the part of the problem here is cultural. I firmly believe FDA is used to having an opponent that is not a thinking opponent. Uh, although uh, you know, bacteria are and viruses are close to that. They they do their thinking over a period of years, not uh, um, immediately. So they. When they hear something could be done, they say, well, has it been done? Well, if it hasn't been done, we don't want to alarm uh, people who've got these pieces of equipment in their bodies. So why don't we just take our time and slowly figure out what we ought to do? They are remarkably slow. Actually, in this case, the FT, or the uh, FDA has been reacting very quickly, that this Have was it. a very recent discovery that all these particular classes were vulnerable. Um, so I think the FDA is catching up. Well, I mean, we've been hearing that, that about Dick be. Cheney's I, I, pacemaker years vulnerabilities back. for years, right? That, I, well, he, had, he he actually turned off the uh, uh, over-the-air uh, uh, communication function uh, precisely because people told him, "Yeah, they could uh, they could take you out that way." <laughs> uh, so uh, he he he's, he's been ahead of the FDA for uh, for a couple of decades. <laughs> Net neutrality, God, the, 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 these court cases are really piling up. Net neutrality is deadish. It was re- uh, reversed by Ajit Pai and the uh, Trump administration's uh, uh, FCC. That was appealed. The uh, D.C. Circuit has now ruled, at least a panel of the D.C. Circuit, and they found things they didn't like about what the uh, um, uh, FCC had done, but they did not st- uh, suspend or strike down the entire regulation. They said, uh, look, fix these problems. We're not telling you exactly how to fix them, but you need to address uh, three specific problems uh, um, and bring that back to us. But meanwhile, you can put the rest of the, uh, the plan into effect, except that uh, the FCC had said, hey, California, you know, I, we know you are going to do something to defy the Trump administration but you're preempted and so is everybody else who does anything other than what we just did, which is deregulate all of this stuff um, uh, and uh, refuse to impose any net neutrality requirements. Uh, um, And the court said, no, you can't do that, although they left open the possibility that uh, the FCC could do it state by state in response to particular laws. So that's that's where we are on uh, uh, net neutrality. Uh, It's uh, it's looking Pretty dead. This this could be appealed, of course, uh, on bank. It could be appealed to the Supreme Court. Neither of those looks like a particularly friendly uh, environment for the people who want net neutrality. I guess the um, uh, Solicitor General could decide to appeal or to unbank this uh, on the issues they lost because they're certainly arguable. Uh, but my guess is they'll take the win and pocket it. Yeah, and then we'll see California do the right thing because although I will argue that it's legal what the uh, FCC did, in my great and unmatched wisdom of watching ISPs, you really need some sort of regulation or you get a lot of bad effects. 
So uh, before we started, uh, David said, can you explain this stuff to me? And I said, yeah, in one sentence, it's that everybody hates their cable provider. Uh, and uh, this was perceived as striking a blow against cable providers, as indeed it does. Uh, let me do the one sentence counterpart. If you let your network provider mess with your network, they will mess in ways designed to enrich them at costs to you. That could be. I can assure you, I think there's very, very little chance of appeal because I believe the president issued a celebratory tweet this morning mentioning this uh, outcome for the FCC as a huge win. So uh, the chances of governmental appeal seem small to me. Yeah, that uh, that sounds right. Uh, let's uh, uh, let's do Elizabeth Warren news. Uh, uh, Nick, uh, Elizabeth Warren has uh, uh, come out with one of her famous uh, detailed plans, and it is pretty detailed uh, about how she would make a, a technology policy. And she called for a revival of something called the Office of Technology Assessment, which I actually served on a panel of uh, uh, before it was. Uh, uh, abolished uh, as part of uh, Newt Gingrich's uh, contract with America. What's your take on this? Um, my take is we do need good technology policy interactions. And at least she's willing to talk about this. And anybody who's talked to Senate staffers or executive branch people as a technologist realizes there's a lack of internal expertise. And internal expertise is critical because even an academic like me has a different set of external biases. And that makes any advice I give always tainted at least a little bit compared with what advice you'd get from internal experts. So these were not, uh, at least as as originally uh, constructed, uh, the Office of Technology Assessment had some people who um, yeah, maybe uh, uh, knew, knew enough about technology to know who they should be talking to and where the biases may be laid, but then they would convene a group ad hoc for a particular project uh, or report to look at a, a, a topic that was referred by someone in Congress. Uh, and they would try to balance it uh, so that most uh, mainstream views were represented, uh, which meant it was actually hard to get uh, a final uh, set of recommendations. Uh, and therefore, uh, these groups tended to produce long reports that uh, told you a lot about the field and then had some recommendations that were not completely satisfying to anyone. Um, that is a function of how it was set up with a uh, uh, an equal number of uh, Republicans and Democrats uh, uh, making decisions about the uh, office. Uh, Elizabeth Warren says she'll get rid of that and uh, appoint one director. Uh, my guess is that means that there's almost a, a guarantee that there's strong opposition from the uh, uh, party that's not in power and thinks that it's going to get excluded and is afraid then you'll get uh, a series of biases built into these uh, reports, uh, they'll be better educated, but equally biased uh, as uh, current uh, uh, policymaking is. So I'm, I'm skeptical. It's not a terrible idea, uh, uh, but uh, uh, it will be a political institution like every other. Well, one thing that would help is just make the director hostile to both parties, and then you piss off <laughs> everybody. Nick. 
yeah. I have a future role in <laughs> yes, mind for they... you. <laughs> I mean, I well, the thing your, I sort of wonder here is you. if something like this were created, how and to what extent is it going to interact with all of the many, both private sector bodies like from Carnegie or or you know from quasi private like National Academies of Science or the various agency technical groups, DOD, NSA, and various others, some of which I've been on, you know that that play in the space. I mean, it's just a very complicated ecosystem for technical advice to policymakers and vice versa. So I don't fully understand how it would fit into or affect that ecosystem. That doesn't mean it's a bad idea, just that I haven't studied it enough and, and that that would be something yeah. you'd want to think about at least. It, it has the distinction of being the only uh, government organization abolished in the last uh, 40 or 50 years and 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 so there's a there's going to be a certain uh, sentimental attachment to keeping it abolished uh, uh, and and a criticism that it's really the deep state that is reviving uh, the office of technology assessment so maybe it won't make it after all we were talking about uh, people hating their cable provider uh, and uh, cable providers uh, ISPs are also up in arms over a Google proposal, a Google and Mozilla proposal, to do DNS over HTTPS, which is a long, very long way of saying they want to encrypt your uh, uh, DNS queries. Uh, and of course, that has the effect of not letting your ISP see them, although the ISP will see where you go. They just won't see the name that you sent to the uh, provider. Uh, but that will have some bad implications for their ability to gather data and uh, offer you advertising. Uh, and they're saying this is Google already dominant in advertising trying to squelch um, competition. Nick, what's your thought on this? This is a tempest in a teapot. Because the ISP, if it wants to, can still know where you're going based on where you're going and the requests you make. And truth be told, if you're using a third-party DNS server and the ISP is looking at the queries you're making to the third-party DNS, how is that any different from looking at the HTTPS request and seeing what site you go to? Wiretapping is wiretapping. You're looking at content in both cases. So from a security point of view, I've seen it argued that there are domains that are bad domains. There are known mal malware domains uh, that uh, are, are an indication that your, your machine's been compromised because it's not you asking for this domain. It's uh, uh, the malware on your device. Uh, and that uh, it would be easy to defeat a lot of the uh, security systems, which watch for those domains, uh, uh, including ISP systems, uh, by changing the IP address every once in a while so that while they see the IP address, they don't know for sure that it's going to the evil domain. Do you buy that? No, because among other things, the DNS server you're contacting over HTTPS is the one best suited to do that analysis and will just say, oh, this is evil domain. Plus, when you actually system actually tries to contact evil domain, that alone is a fingerprint and you detect that. So the notion that this has a significant negative impact on security is pretty low. But at the same time, there's very little privacy benefit from doing that either. 
Oh, zip, because uh, if you're going to any commercial domain that you're uneasy about people knowing about, uh, uh, it'll have a pretty stable IP address and everybody will be able to reconstruct it if they can wiretap you. More so is that the actual request you send says who you're trying to talk to. So in HTTP, you say, this is the particular website. When you're doing an encrypted connection, you say, this is the host I want to talk to. So you don't need DNS to find out what host somebody is talking to. The computer is actually saying, I want to talk to bad, evil porn site. So why would, why would Google and Mozilla be so hot on doing this? Because it does prevent ISPs from manipulating the results of DNS. So one thing that ISPs have done in the past is take the DNS results you're supposed to get, change them to something hostile to the user. So we've seen them intercept Google, Yahoo, Bing searches to insert ads. We've seen ISPs intercept to add stealthy affiliate links into Amazon. Okay, so that would be uh, uh, that would that would not be your ex- what you expect from your ISP. Uh, and uh, uh, so Google and Mozilla just think they're preventing sleazy behavior. And this is why people like me believe that net neutrality is necessary, is it's designed specifically against these sleazy behaviors we have seen done. Yeah, Google is saying, hey, you know, if if anybody's going to slip uh, bad search results in just because of money, it's going to be Google. Uh, yeah. Anybody else doing that? So, guys, how <laughs> yep. does a VPN okay. solve or not solve the problems on the privacy and the security side of this? A VPN shifts your privacy uh, disclosure from your local network to wherever your VPN exits. So VPNs as a privacy are kind of iffy, really, unless you're dealing with a VPN that belongs to you or your corporation. Got it. Yeah, because the, the VP, it's very hard to find a VPN you can trust. Uh, and if they're offering you services for free, it's even harder is my sense. Yes. If they're offering it for free, you are guaranteed to be wiretapped. So I'm, I'm guessing a free VPN is what the Uzbek uh, uh, cyber attackers uh, would, would be looking for. Uh, these guys, they have, 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 have combined uh, too much money too much ambition and a complete lack of uh, understanding what they're doing uh, to uh, to sort of embarrass cyber attackers everywhere. Uh, uh, Nick, uh, uh, what's the story? This is great. You have to read it. So what happened is Uzbek's uh, cyber attackers bought NSO Group software and then tested on their own systems and configured using Kaspersky, which, of course, like any other antivirus, sees, oh, suspicious file, upload for further analysis. Oh, cool, NSO's latest zero day. And apparently they burned like two or three NSO group zero days this way, as well as just being grossly embarrassing. So uh, the one thing I was one, I I thought it was a very funny story too, but I kind of wonder, Kaspersky is bragging that essentially they rifled through this guy's, uh, uh, this organization's uh, uh, computer 
uh, looking at every single file, found some things that looked like they might be attack tools, and uploaded them. You know, maybe that was in the terms of service, but I'm guessing the Uzbeks uh, didn't read the terms very carefully. Uh, and isn't Kaspersky sort of reminding us that uh, um, you really have to not just trust your VPN provider, you really, really have to trust your antivirus provider? Yes, but at the same time, if it was Symantec, it would be the same thing, that any modern antivirus system has to have the notion of this is unknown, this is new, I've never seen it before on the planet, let's upload it for further analysis. So do you th- this this is an interesting internal debate in Kaspersky. I'm sure I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have done this to the GRU. And I'm pretty sure they would have done it to NSA because, uh, you know, that's that's sort of where their incentives are slowly lining up. Um, the Uzbeks apparently are not close enough to the GRU for Kaspersky to worry about. Well, the Uzbeks weren't buying GRU stuff. They were buying Israeli software. <laughs> Maybe that's it. That's okay. So it's a it's a deep commercial rivalry being expressed here. All right, um, uh, David. France has decided to go whole hog on facial recognition, apparently, uh, uh, notwithstanding the efforts of uh, Western NGOs to turn it toxic. Uh, um, how big a deal is that? Well, it's easy to see this through the lens of you know the United States uh, adopting more and more restrictions on technology, including facial recognition in support of governmental efforts, uh, such as law enforcement, at least at the municipal level, uh, while the Europeans continue to criticize, uh, you know, failure to regulate further in the U S and actually roll out fairly aggressive surveillance authorities of their own. Um, what's going on here in particular may not really be part of that. Uh, France is going to become the first European country to use facial recognition to give you, if you're a citizen of France, a secure digital identity. They're going to let you or actually force you to log in by taking a video of yourself on an Android app, which, uh, which video of your face will then be compared to their biometric passport uh, file, uh, which has your photo in it. And then and only then will you have this secure digital identity uh, for use in various government programs. Um, and this is, I'm sure Apple is bothered, an Android only application, which has the uh, French Republic flag and, and symbol on it. And so that's how it's going to work. Uh, there's lots of challenges. The French data regulator thinks it may be illegal. There are advocacy groups challenging it under various theories, including European-wide regulation. So, you know, it's a little bit of a mess. Um, there are people concerned about it from a privacy perspective. Uh, there are people concerned about it from a security perspective. Um, it is it is a nice microcosm in many many ways of our current digital state of affairs. So my, my, my prediction is the privacy authority, the Caneal in France, uh, does not have the clout to untie the security services' shoes, uh, uh, let alone stop them from doing this. Uh, um, and and I, I, the privacy objection here is it sounds incoherent. Uh, uh, the French already have their citizens' pictures in their passport uh, files. If you and and they're basically using facial recognition to verify that 
the person who's asking for the ID is the person that they issued a passport to, which is a that's a fifty dollar per encounter problem when you're issuing IDs that the French have solved at, you know, pennies per encounter. Um, And it's a security device to prevent people from having their identities stolen uh, uh, by people who are persuasive online. It's hard to see what privacy harm is done by looking at a video uh, of someone's face when you already have a picture of them in your database. Well, you, you've accurately described the, the way at least the, the, the program has been described in the media. So, um, you know, your your point is well taken. Uh, it certainly has not quelled the privacy concerns of having a governmental app that scans your face. And I suppose people may worry that it could do so without your express permission or who knows what. I don't understand exactly what, what the concerns are. Um, and it's not clear that those advancing them do either. Well, you, you haven't heard it often on this uh, podcast, but vive la France. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Nick, the German cops shut down a uh, bulletproof hosting uh, uh, provider who was using a former NATO bunker. Uh, Apart from the fact that it's cooler down there than uh, in, uh, up above, is there any particular advantage except that it sounds cool to say, hey, we're running our bulletproof uh, 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 hosting operation out of a NATO bunker? Or was that just uh, uh, salesmanship? Uh, it's cool. So f- this in many ways is a follow-on to the original cyber bunker, which was in 2002 in a Norwegian NATO bunker because it's good marketing. And they got kicked out of the bunker a long time ago, but kept the name and kept saying they were in the bunker. Well, I, so, what I like is, the, the, hey, the, it's good marketing. The first for time your... they got cut off, uh, kicked out, it was because somebody else thought it was cool and was running a meth lab uh, uh, on the floor below and it caught fire. And so the uh, uh, firemen came and, and threw everybody out. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Uh, uh, they they were marketing as a bunker while they were operating out of you know some boring suburban uh, data center. Yep. And this is probably one of those things that will be actually fairly significant because major bulletproof hosting in centralized locations is a rare resource these days. Yeah, good. It, it ought to be rare. It ought to be like vanishing or rare. So th- it's, a, it's a good thing they they went into the bunker and shut these guys down. Uh, they're scum. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, it's remarkable how many people bought the bunker uh, bunk. Um, the attorney general is really getting serious about this encryption stuff. Uh, you know, he He's just the attorney general. He can't pass laws. Uh, but he's been working the issue. He sent uh, uh, Zuckerberg a letter saying, really, really do not put uh, encryption on all of your uh, uh, Facebook properties. Uh, It will uh, seriously set back uh, law enforcement and especially efforts to prevent child abuse. Uh, He had a conference uh, a day or two ago uh, uh, where he pitched it again to a bunch of tech companies. they aren't buying especially, but I, I wonder if he isn't uh, starting to make some headway in public estimation uh, uh, just because he is so relentless and they're so increasingly unpopular. And ignorance seems to work very well for him. So 
What he is rallying about is the notion of warrant-proof encryption. Encryption, you can't wiretap with a court order. Now, iMessage has encryption you can wiretap with a court order. That they haven't is an interesting legal question, but the encryption allows that. Of course, even that sort of encryption is enough that Facebook-style bulk scanning of every image for known child porn doesn't work. And so really what Barr is saying is he wants a system not that has basically warrantable encryption, but has no encryption at all that is undergoing continuous bulk surveillance of all images, which is arguably a good thing. It does really reduce a lot of the crime. But using this as an excuse for attacking encryption per se, I think is kind of disingenuous that what he claims he wants would stop this sort of bulk scanning. And if you want to say you want bulk scanning of all images, say you want bulk scanning of all images. Fair enough. I think he, he just wants to, he wants to knock a chip out of this wall that the tech companies have put up, uh, to say, saying with equal disingenuity, uh, um, why, it's math. Anything we did would be bad for security, and we wouldn't want us to be bad for security because it's bad for our customers. Uh, I, and that's just totally bogus. Uh, but if you want to do that, you focus on the device encryption problem, that the Carnegie report is really well done in separating out the distinction between the data in motion and data at rest problem. And we actually could do data at rest. And if you really wanted to hammer Silicon Valley, what you start doing is looking at data at rest rather than data at motion, because data at rest is something that we can potentially solve without blowing huge holes in our security systems. Yeah, but you have to pick a fight directly with Apple. Um, and that didn't go so well for them the last time. But Apple's PR... Um, force is second to none. Their reality distortion field, while in need of repair after Jobs left uh, uh, the scene, uh, is nonetheless better than anybody else's because of the fanboys. Uh, uh, and uh, um, they may just want to try out working on Facebook, which is a lot less popular than, than Apple. Uh, uh, now, I, I will say, Apple is not looking so good after last week when uh, they banned an app in Hong Kong that would tell you where the police were shooting people uh, so that you could avoid it, uh, uh, saying it was illegal. They've apparently rolled that back a little at least, maybe not completely, yeah. um, uh, but it, it certainly produced a wave of stories, uh, headlined uh, things like, uh, hey, here's that hippie pro-privacy, pro-freedom Apple y'all love so much. Um, uh, and, and so um, the fundamental problem Apple's always had is that they standing up for privacy and civil liberties in the United States and not in China uh, continues to be a problem. But I still think Taking them on on this issue would be going back to the place where you got a bloody nose in the hopes that you get a different outcome. On the other hand, with the China business, um, remember when we were told that doing business in China would increase freedom for China, not decrease freedom for us? Yeah, you saw the latest with the NBA. God forbid you say you're on the side of Hong Kong protesters. Oh, China? 
if you object, I work at Leland Stanford Junior College. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, a lot of things that were said during the hippie days of the internet are looking pretty shaky right now. And and everybody who bought into that is, um, if they didn't get rich, they're disillusioned. Uh, if they did, they still they still buy it. We still hear about uh, how important it is to have a single uh, uh, undifferentiated internet around the world, uh, you know, as though people hadn't noticed what had happened in the last five years. Uh, all right. I uh, quickly through moving through some other stories. NSA has a new cybersecurity defense directorate headed by Ann Newberger. Uh, uh, David uh, Ann has a, a tentatively agreed to come on and talk about that sometime uh, uh, in 2020 after it gets stood up. So I'm hoping that uh, we can get uh, deep insight into what it's doing. Oh, that's terrific because uh, she's really first class. Um, you know, subject to uh, the caveats, uh, as always, because uh, I'm on Nakasone's advisory board, the NSA used to be organized fundamentally between signals intelligence on the one hand and information assurance on the other. So basically offense and defense. Uh, they then went through a pretty major reorganization known as NSA 21 a few years ago, in which they collapsed those distinctions and organized really on a temporal axis between operations, which is today, capabilities, which is tomorrow, and research, which is several years out in the future. And the institution of this cybersecurity directorate is really a move back to recognizing that the defense side of the equation needs some special attention and love from the organization and from its structures. And it's an attempt to widen the aperture on information assurance to embrace today's nomenclature cybersecurity, but also I think it's a real effort and reflects a real effort by uh, General Nakasone to position NSA as an organization that can help uh, and build bridges to the private sector and build a broader base of support for its value proposition along those lines. Uh, and that's what I think is really behind this. Uh, and Ann Neuberger, uh, as its leader, I, I predict will give you a very, very interesting and informative interview. If you can get her, I, I strongly recommend it. Okay, uh, that that's the plan. I yes, getting rid of uh, IA and that uh, mission, burying it in the reorg, uh, um, was an act of panic because of the uh, uh, moves to take it out of the NSA and make it an independent uh, body, particularly in the Obama administration. There was a lot of talk about that. And uh, NSA freaked and buried it. Uh, and now they realize that's not likely to happen. Uh, it does remind me, I used to you know, I was at the Department of Homeland Security. We always had something bad happening somewhere in the world every week. Uh, uh, and people would sometimes say, well, we have to we have to take action here and make sure that people don't panic. Ordinary citizens, we don't, we don't want them to panic. And I used to say, you know, I've, I've been around a while and the only time I've seen real panic is in government. Uh, and this was a this was a government panic. Uh, uh, and they did something stupid, which they're now undoing. So. Pervy Yahoo engineer uh, uh, pleads guilty to uh, hacking emails to extract pornographic images. Uh, um, is the message here that you, among other things, you have to really trust your VPN provider, you have to really trust uh, uh, Google, you have to really trust your ISP, and now you apparently have to really, really trust the security guys that uh, oversee uh, your system? 
Yeah, and also that uh, no matter what your company is, if you deal with other people's data, you have to worry about lovent from your staff. Yeah, and this is completely foreseeable, right? I, one of the things I'm su- sort of surprised by is I don't know that uh, – I, I was sure there was going to be a mini boomlet in writing – Codes of conduct for security uh, investigators and security staff and big corporations, precisely because they have massive access to. Uh, oh, they they know your your logon credentials if they want to uh, for all of your uh, private services. Um, a, a, there doesn't seem to be a lot of that, and instead, there's just occasional prosecutions. There's a lot that goes on under the hood, though. So these days, you have a lot of auditing and audit trails specifically designed to prevent these incidents from occurring. Okay. Um, while we're while we're doing the uh, um, uh, the crime blotter, uh, uh, David, uh, uh, the NSD racked up another uh, uh, charge against uh, a Chinese spy. It's like a number 42 in the last six months, I think. Uh, um, uh, although I, I have to say, this has to be the, the, the spy least likely to have a novel written about him. Uh, he was neither an officer nor a source. He was just a kind of a guy who carried uh, uh, money and uh, 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 SD cards. Yeah, he's a U.S. citizen, 56 years old. He lives in California, and he was run by the MSS, according to the charges. And, and of course, nothing's been proven yet. But according to the charges, he was under control of MSS officials in China, and he was basically a mule. He would collect these little data cards of the sort you use in your digital camera from the real spies, and he would uh, transfer them uh, cash so that they could carry on their operations. And then he would bring these camera cards to China and hand them over to the Chinese authorities. And he would meet, you know, he would he would make dead drop uh, connections in hotel rooms and so forth and so on. So it's an interesting mix of the physical and the digital. Uh, And uh, if the government can prove its case, he'll be a guest of Uncle Sam for a while. So how big does your espionage network have to be that you essentially have Uber for uh, uh, dead drops? This is is pretty actually a scary development. Well, I mean, I do think everybody who pays close attention to this uh, knows that the, the People's Republic of China is you know, got a very, very large presence here across many fronts. They sort of effectively take a flood the zone approach and they have to, uh, you know, uh, use Uber equivalents or other means of exfilling their data. They decided to do this physically rather than, you know, maybe a more traditional cyber approach to do it over a network. Um, There are advantages and disadvantages to that approach. Um, This time, you know, their mule got caught. Um, but it's it, no one should think that the, that takes care of it, and we've rolled up uh, all the Chinese efforts to steal data. Um, they're alive and well, uh, and we are really playing a little bit of a whack-a-mole game here. Okay, two more stories. One, uh, um, uh, a, a triumph of bipartisanship. Uh, the Senate has now passed a bill um, uh, uh, that resembles a House bill and probably is conferenceable uh, uh, that authorizes DHS to 
create response team, incident response teams, uh, known because it's government uh, as hunt teams, um, a, 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 to help uh, uh, school districts mainly when they are under attack uh, uh, by ransomware or other uh, uh, hackers. Um, this is I, I don't know if you guys looked at this at all. It is really much less than meets the eye since it just authorizes it. And the idea that you could have DHS create enough teams so that they could actually respond to all of the ransomware and other attacks in the country against uh, uh, just school districts uh, is, I think, uh, absurd. Especially since with ransomware, once you're attacked, it's probably too late that they've already gone through, nuked your local attached backups, uh, have all your data encrypted, and basically it's pay the man. Yeah. Okay. Uh, last story. I cannot resist this story because we've gone too long without talking about the intersection of sex and technology. Uh, probably, what, uh, uh, 20 minutes. Uh, and uh, uh, in the city of Auburn Hills, Michigan, people who were driving along the freeway noticed that the electronic billboard next to the, uh, uh, the, the their road was uh, showing porn. Uh, and uh, it turned out uh, two young men... Uh, that's what I judge from their pictures, uh, uh, had broken into a roadside uh, uh, server uh, and uploaded porn uh, to it and showed it briefly. They haven't been caught yet, as far as I know, but uh, uh, and they were clearly aware that there was going to be cameras because they're wearing hoodies pulled tight around their glasses. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, I think they're in serious trouble because funny as it is, it's probably uh, uh, a felony. Um, uh, the, the, the best part of this was um, showing the crowdsourcing uh, face recognition, I guess it's face, um, uh, of uh, uh, this particular community. Um, uh, folks from bits and snippets of the, uh, uh, of the movie that uh, people captured on their phones were able to identify the actresses involved uh, and approach them for comment. Uh, and my, uh, I thought the best one was one of them said, uh, uh, well, it's kind of an honor, but I would say to uh, anybody driving by, keep both hands on the wheel. Good advice. <laughs> okay, so uh, that wrap, that's, that's an appropriate wrap for this uh, session. Uh, thanks to David, Chris, and Nick Weaver. We're not going to do an interview today because no one will come in after that remark. Uh, this has been episode 281 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Please send us guest suggestions. Uh, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Follow me on Twitter. When I'm feeling energetic, I will uh, try to send out these stories, but I didn't this week. My apologies. Uh, right the show leave us a review we would appreciate that we're gonna we're gonna uh, have some discussion of quantum computing coming up uh, we're gonna get alex joel who used to be uh, uh the dni's uh, uh civil liberties and privacy officer uh and we're uh, we're told brad smith has promised that uh, he will come in and talk about his book and uh, uh we will uh, uh push him hard on uh, uh some of the things uh, kind of slightly hippie uh, things that uh, he he has said about the future and uh, desirable future of the internet. So please join us uh, next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.